My fear is that Oslo is so now entrenched in in the West Bank and the Palestinian political system that if at best there are elections, that it's just going to be replacing one person with another, but not at all challenging the system. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Winstanley, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Asa, how are you? It is finally fall. (laughs) How is it over there? Greetings from across the Atlantic, Nora. (laughs) Yes, it's um, it's getting cold and extremely rainy, as always, on this rainy island. Um, Yeah, but otherwise, things are good. Well, actually, that's a lie. They're not good. The country is falling apart. Yeah, yeah, Um, great. Um, I wish you the best of luck in um, the the, the near and far future uh, in in the UK. Um, Here in California, we are heading into the prolonged wildfire season. So, again, we're not looking forward to that either. Um, Chaos everywhere. We have a really really good podcast. Um, And... uh, uh, we're going to be joined by Deanna Butu, um, who is a fantastic political analyst, and she has um, some really, really uh, essential analysis on um, yeah, what, some really good insights. Yeah, on what the Israeli elections mean, and also uh, the rumors of yet another yet another batch of rumors uh, about the um, possible but probably not likely uh, elections with the Palestinian Authority. Um, so stay tuned for that. But um, but first, uh, Asa, I was um, just kind of poking around the internets today, and uh, I saw this article about the, ex- uh, the expansion of the Maccabee Task Force, um, which is Sheldon Adelson's um, you know, uh, project, which... Um, Sheldon Adelson, who is like... Basically, an evil supervillain. For sure, he I mean, even looks he, like one. He, he, yes. he, yeah, he's like the sort of melting Lex Luthor <laughs> of the Israel lobby. He's, he's know, also yeah, Trump's he's, uh, he's major terrible. donor. He was, you know, he's been behind such uh, such fantastic Trumpian events as uh, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That was Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon Adelson's. Um, you know, crowning moment and achievement, something he's mm. been pushing for for a long time. Uh, he also got mm. his wife to, to, I think, at the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is fantastic. I mean, mm. I, I guess everything's for sale these days, of course, especially under Trump. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Sheldon Adelson's uh, Maccabee Task Force, uh, which has been, um, it's basically a, a, a very well-funded astroturfing campaign in which uh, Israel lobby groups funded by Sheldon Adelson um, go onto U.S. campuses and try to disrupt boycott, divestment, and sanctions activity and campaigns there. Um, it, right. it, there is a Times of Israel article this week that, um, that said that it will be expanding its efforts to six other countries outside the U.S. Of course, they didn't um, right. reveal which countries the task force was heading to, but I'm 
I'm pretty sure that the UK is is on that list. Um, because, right, yeah, yeah, I did see the headline of this story, although I yeah. didn't get into it. But yeah, I, I, the speculation I saw was that it would expand to the UK. Yeah. yeah. And um, and what's really interesting, and I tweeted about this a little bit, is that it, uh, you know, it's kind of all, I mean, they're very explicit about what they do. The Israel lobby has no qualms about, you know, influencing politicians, about, um, you know, uh, installing, you know, various surveillance uh, outfits and tactics on U.S. campuses mm. to spy on students. And and mm. here in this article, and we'll link to this on the podcast uh, blog post that accompanies this, is uh, they, you know, a, 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 um, a senior official with the Maccabee Task Force, um, David Brog, uh, I guess he's the the uh, executive director. He said that the the model of the the task force is, you know, providing the financial resources to allow campus pro-Israel groups to counter BDS in whatever ways they deem most effective for their particular campus. That's the Times of Israel. Mm. But Brog says, quote, the deal with our partners was if these things are things, if these are things you want to do, here's the deal. You do them, we pay for them, and you don't have to put our name or logo on it. He said, you're doing it, <laughs> you own it. Right. So like well, that's just interesting. explicitly, right, explaining how how, you know, their astroturfing campaigns work. Um, you know, they they market it, you know, on campus pro-Israel groups market their campaigns as like very grassroots, you know, very, um, you know, multiracial and mm. multicultural, uh, very liberal. And really uh, what's behind it is is the funding of these very right wing, very racist anti-Palestinian groups like the Maccabee Task Force. So, yeah. we will uh, we'll follow that. Yeah, that that um, wording that you just read out um it sounds. I mean, that makes me suspect the involvement of the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs because absolutely because that's exactly their strategy. You know what they call the the white label strategy of like coming up with this propaganda and then you right. slap the label of a so called local group on it um, to right. kind of I guess launder it the propaganda through yep. uh, a local designate or a cutout. I suppose. Right. Um, so, right. I mean, that's that's what Sheldon Adelson has done uh, in the past. Yeah. Of course, you know, you and I have done extensive reporting on the uh, the Act.il app mm. that Israel uses uh, to whip up propaganda for um, for Israel, and that app was was funded by Sheldon Adelson, working with the Ministry of Strategic Affairs yeah. and a bunch of Israeli think tanks. Um, so Sheldon Adelson has his hands all over this mm. and, uh, and yeah, you're right. So does the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. I mean, this is how they're trying to clamp down on any sort of, um, speech, uh, that, 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 you know, that criticizes Israel, especially on, on campuses. And this model has worked for them in some ways. Um, and so they're trying to take it globally now. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are really... Many other countries doing similar things, it would be called yeah. espionage. Because what, you know, right. what people forget sometimes about um, spies and espionage is they're not just spying on things as if it, like, they're not just sort of neutrally observing things. I mean, and this goes for any, it goes for intelligence agencies across the world. They're trying to influence events, right? And so that's what, yeah. that's what the Israelis yeah. are doing, you know. But they're allowed yeah. to get, I mean, there's yeah. no way that, um, American and British intelligence agents. Well, they know. They know all this stuff is going on, but they allow it to go of on. Of course. Because 
Of course. They're on board with because the it's agenda. Israel. Yeah. 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 That's it. Well, um, I'm really excited about this podcast, as I said, uh, this episode. And, um, you know, Deanna is, uh, we're going to hear from her in just a few minutes. But, um, you know, give us a little teaser of what uh, Deanna Butu is talking about this episode and why it's important um, to, to, you know, to, to tune into. Yeah, Deanna Butu talks about, um, yeah, it was, it was a really good interview and she's got a lot of insight. She's always worth listening to. Um, and um, she gives us a bit of an overview of the political parties in the Knesset that are majority Palestinian um, and that represent the, by and large, represent the Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel inside the, the 48 territories. Um, and some of the really interesting stuff about their historical origins, um, about um, the racism that they experience, especially. Uh, and sexism, um, especially towards um, people who've uh, become hate figures like uh, Hanin Zawabi. Um, and yeah. um, we get some into the Palestinian Authority as well. So it's, um, it's a really good interview, really interesting read for, uh, really interesting listen for all our listeners out there. Excellent. Well, let's go to it. Uh, after a short musical break, we'll be right back. Joining us to talk about the recent Israeli election and what it all means for Palestinians is political analyst Deanna Butu. Deanna is a formal legal advisor and negotiator for the Palestine Liberation Organization. She's also a policy advisor to Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. Deanna, it's so good to speak with you. Thanks for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, Nora. Thank you, Asa. The Israeli elections ended a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there seems to be an ongoing tug of war between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz. And meanwhile, the Joint List, which is a coalition representing Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, has thrown its support behind Gantz, a war crime suspect whose resume includes attacking Gaza in 2014. Uh, as our colleague Omar Karmi writes, in doing this, quote, the joint list broke with decades of practice that has seen Palestinian parties refuse to support any Israeli government. Deanna, bring us up to date here. What does the political landscape look uh, look like there right now? 
So it's still um, quite divided and we're, there's a lot of speculation that we may actually be entering into a third election rather than uh, rather than forming any sort of government. And the reason is, is that um, it's it, neither Gans nor Netanyahu are able to be able to get the 61 members who are necessary in order to be able to form a coalition. Um, Netanyahu is unable to get 61 members without the support of Gans, and Gans doesn't want to throw his weight behind uh, Netanyahu. And similarly, Gans can't do it uh, either way. So what we're looking at now is um, kind of a caretaker government that's in place until a decision is made as to whether uh, to have a third election or whether we see that that uh, these two parties are going to unite and form form a coalition. Mm-hmm. It's looking very likely that it's going to be the latter, that uh, that the two parties will unite and form and form some co- type of coalition. And, uh, and the real question is, who's going to be the person who's leading it? That's it. Can you talk about, uh, in in your view and, and the view of many Palestinians, especially inside 48, uh, present-day Israel, what a change in, you know, if Gantz becomes prime minister, what difference that would make to Palestinians living inside Israel and, and those, of course, in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip? So, um, you know, the decision by three of the four parties within the joint list to say that they preferred to see Gantz as a prime minister versus Netanyahu doesn't come in a political vacuum. And I also don't think it's as big as some people have have uh, made it out to be. I wouldn't have done it myself. I, I don't agree with the decision, but I uh, but I don't think it's as big as um, as some people made it out to be. So the the decision for them to um, support one over the other was very much uh, kind of the equivalent of Sophie's choice. Um, you're stuck between between a war criminal and a war criminal. Which war criminal are you going to choose? And the reason that there was a decision um, to favor Gantz over Netanyahu is because of what he has done over the course of the past 10 years. You know, it's important for, for people to understand exactly what type of prime minister Netanyahu is, not just for Palestinians um, inside the West Bank and Gaza Strip, but also for Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. This is a man who is ideologically, ideologically opposed to any form of equality, who at his core is very much a racist, who has done his utmost to uh, make sure that racism is normalized within the country, who's placed people in his cabinet are who are individuals who call for ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, who has passed law after law and regulation after regulation that is directly aimed at attacking Palestinians, including um, a law that would affect 50,000 homes of Palestinians inside uh, inside Israel. This is a, a, a law that may lead to the demolition of these homes. Um, a prime minister who has been actively and pushed for the passage of the Jewish nation state, which I call the Jewish supremacy law. Uh, so this is a person who at his core is somebody who is very much a racist. Now, is Gantz different than Netanyahu? No. Um, was it the mindset that that it that it was time for uh, Netanyahu to leave? And that was very much a yes. And m- many people um, who were voting in this past election, many Palestinians in Israel who were voting in this past election, very much viewed it as their opportunity to get rid of Netanyahu. Now, again, my, I, I differ. I don't think that it's 
it's our role or our job to be choosing um, which war criminal it is who's going to be at the at the helm. Instead, our job is to be a very strong, very coherent uh, opposition. But uh, but but most of the people who who um, who voted, or not most, a lot of people who voted, very much viewed that that it was absolutely time to get rid of um, Netanyahu and and hope that that uh, somebody like Gans would be any better. You know, for somebody like me, when I look at Gans's record, Gans's record is really no better than Netanyahu. Certainly not when it comes to uh, his bombing campaigns in uh, in the Gaza Strip. Um, he's also somebody who not only came out and supports annexation, but claims that it was his idea to begin with. Uh, but also somebody who who has who has also supported the the nation state law and who came out very um, very vociferously and 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 very um, strongly saying that he didn't want. Palestinians to be backing him. So uh, this is also a person who is whose whose history is not very promising. Who's also um, uh, racist as well. I think the bigger issue for a lot of people was that after a decade of seeing Netanyahu, um, they felt that it was time for him to go. I guess I wanted to ask you about the joint list um, and. Um, uh, Deanna, and you, you said that um, it's not the the, the joint lists um, or part of the, the the majority of the joint lists lawmakers, we should say, a recommendation towards the Israeli president president that Benny Gantz should be prime minister rather than Netanyahu is not as significant as some commentators um, have uh, stated, and in that that case has sort of been overstated by some analysts somewhat. Um, could you expand on that point, what, what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, um, so at the end of every uh, every Israeli election, the parties are always asked of the, the candidates who are leading in terms of the number of seats, who would they like to see as prime minister? And traditionally, the anti-Zionist parties have always said, doesn't matter to us because at the end of the day, it, uh, it it's going to affect us in the same way. Uh, provided that you're a Zionist, then then it doesn't matter whether the person is uh, is Netanyahu or or Livni or whoever it is. Um, and so that's always been that's been the traditional response. And this was the response that I think I and others were expecting. We were expecting. Um, those who've been watching this have been expecting that this would be the a similar path that was taken. But in the end, the three of the four, given the three of the four parties that make up the joint list, given where the numbers were falling, and given that what ends up happening is that uh, the the president ends up choosing which party he which person he's going to task to form a government, based on that, the decision was taken to um, say that they would that they would prefer to see Gantz as the leader versus Netanyahu, and if you ended up seeing that there ended up being fifty five recommendations for uh, for Netanyahu and fifty four for Gantz, so even their calculation didn't really pay off. What does it mean? Why isn't it as significant? Because 
even if even with them saying that they prefer to see GANs, we're not going to see the joint list ever, ever become a member of the government. And the reason that we're never going to see this or in the coalition or any of this stuff is because being a member of the government means that they're going to be the ones who are signing off on the bombs dropping on Gaza, means that they're the ones who are going to be signing off on the new settlement that goes up, the land confiscation, the home demolitions, and so on. And there isn't a single Palestinian that's going to sign on to that and say, yes, I enthusiastically want to do this. Their yeah. job to be is to be opposition and it's to be an opposition that's able to advocate an anti-Zionist um, platform and an anti-Zionist position. So at the end of the day, the, their decision to end up recommending Gantz versus Netanyahu was much more of a tactical numbers gain than, than anything else. This isn't their, um, their entry into the Israeli political spectrum of, of joining into, into the coalition, um, but it is their way of saying that we have had enough with, with Netanyahu and it's time for him to go. Again, should they have done it? It's questionable. I wouldn't have. I, this is why I, didn't, I, don't, um, I don't support it because I don't believe that there's a way for us to be the quote-unquote kingmakers uh, within Israeli politics. Uh, but I do understand why that decision was made as, as being more of a, a, a tactical one rather than one where it's an endorsement of one candidate over another. I think the big problem was the way that the op-ed um, appeared and the way that the, 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 that the articles that were written about it uh, came out afterwards. It very much sounded as though this was Ayman Arode and the rest of the members of the joint list saying that they're now going to be coalition partners with Gantz, which is not what at all what happened. Thanks. That's, that's really interesting. Um, so for our listeners, I suppose we should clarify that um, the political parties we're talking about um, under the joint list banner are often referred to as the Arab political parties or the, you know, the, the Palestinian political parties within Israel. Um, but um, they are not, solely Arab parties is that is, I mean they they do have Jewish members that's correct right yes yes yeah. yes so not only the, there are Jewish members there's within at least one of the parties uh, mandated um, uh, like they have it in a what's the word I'm looking for a quota not a quota and then there's there's a the top few seats are is is reserved for somebody who is Jewish, because the aim for the idea behind that party is that um, that this is an anti-Zionist party uh, that is all inclusive, not a Zionist party. And and it's you know it's, uh, it's it's actually quite interesting when I when I step back and and analyze what the joint list. Um, as individual parties, let's say, what they stand for versus what the Zionist parties stand for. You've got, for example, in Netanyahu's coalition, he has somebody, the education minister, who believes in gay conversion therapy versus Aida Tumasliman, who is somebody who's been actively and, and strongly pushing for LGBTQ rights. So you can see the contrast, and the, the contrast isn't just a political one, it's a fundamental one. You have, and they are the opposition because it's the opposition to Zionism. So when you have 
a part when you have Zionist parties that believe in racism and exclusion um, and and superiority versus parties that believe in anti-racism and non-exclusion and in inclusion and equality, you can see the difference. And this is where where um, this is where you see this is why the joint list is in opposition to the government rather than part of the government. Yeah, the way you're describing it, it sounds like joint list is really um, the opposition to the entire edifice of the Israeli state of the, the Zionist system in a way. Um, which 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 party was that that you described of having the quotas? Uh, that would be it's it used to be called the Communist Party, the Israel Communist Party, oh, but it's no it's called Jebha, and yeah. uh, um, and so that that's the one where it has uh, mandated within its rules that. I don't even remember the number, but one of the the top, um, I think one of the top four. Um, yeah. yeah, they have Dov Hickand in the Knesset, right? They used to have Dov Hanin. Now they have uh, a guy named uh, Ophir Kasif. Okay, um, so um, it's it's interesting the way you're um, describing these parties um, as um, anti-Zionist parties. Um, could you talk about that a little bit more? Because I mean, my I made the uh, assumption, I suppose, that they were more non-Zionist rather than explicitly anti-Zionist parties because, I mean, it, I mean, how strong is their... I mean, I'm just sort of raising this as a point of interest, not as any kind of purity test or anything like that, but just, like, how strongly are they able to articulate that anti-Zionism, I suppose, within the strictures of the Israeli state is what I'm trying to get at. This is because exactly... Of the problem, right? So within the within when you're when you're working within a system that is a Zionist system that punishes you for not being a Zionist, the 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 public discourse and the public line that you can take can only go so far. For example, um, in order to be a member of the Knesset, you have to you have to sign on to some some principles where it says that Israel is the is um, the nation state of the Jewish people and that you believe in this. And so for, for members of Knesset in the past, they've challenged this. And, uh, and, and yet, and there's also, uh, within the, within the, um, system, uh, this, a statement that at most you can believe in, um, the two state, if we're, you know, <laughs> if we're going down the fantasy path. Um, at most you can believe in, in the idea of of two states, and uh, and so for members of Knesset, they're often walking this very fine line of of falling with wanting to advocate and do the best for their community, while at the same time uh, falling within the the confines of what are laid out in terms of the Knesset rules. And this is why you see quite often, actually, at every single election. Um, the, an attempt to try to get, try to oust individual members of Knesset to not have them run, or t- an attempt to exclude an entire list. So, in the last election, the, the one that took place in in April, uh, there were motions or attempts to try to disqualify completely the Belad party. Uh, there were attempts to try to disqualify Ophir, the guy from from uh, Jebha. Uh, these are the these are this is the the line in which they they are constantly walking and the attempts to to oust them were because they're 
lines of um, what they talk about as anti-Zionist and not Zionist or or even as you put it, non-Zionist. Uh, so this is a, this is the tension that they're that they're constantly facing. Now, is there a movement within the country to boycott for ideological reasons? Absolutely, and there has been for a long time. The numbers go up and down uh, all the time. People who who believe that it, just by voting in the system, you're legitimating the system, um, and so that's you know that's obviously a. a, a it's obviously a real, there's a real movement and a lot of people who, who very much advocate this, who say exactly as you've said, these are not anti-Zionist parties. These are parties that are working within the system and at best they can do is uh, achieve some, or make some small achievements, but not challenge or break the system from within. Yeah. Yeah. I'm- interesting. Um, I just have to say, Nora, before you make your point, I, uh, my apologies to Dov Kinnan, since I called him Dov Hickand, who's like someone very different in the United States. Yes, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say Dov Hickand, the uh, the former former New York City Assemblyman who uh, is a follower of the Mayor Kahane movement. Yeah, he, he was he was Kahane's yeah. lawyer or one of his lawyers at yes. some point. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard Dov Hanin. That's very funny. So you know, it's funny how the mind takes you to what you yeah. want to hear. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's who I meant. You know, I'm, that's who I actually meant. But I, I got the Dov mix up. So yeah, my apologies. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Deanna, I was I was um, reminded when you, when when you were talking about uh, you know how Palestinian politicians in Israel have to walk that fine line, and I'm remember I'm remembering what happened to Hanin Zoabi. Um, and do you see someone like Ayman Ode being able to challenge, um, you know, the, the Zionist structure inside the Knesset? Um, do you think that, you know, if, if he takes a step over the line, uh, so to speak, that he will also be completely castigated like Hanin Zoabi was and is still? If he were to do that, yes. Will he do that? No, he's not Hanin. He's, uh, he's a, a very different person who believes very differently than she does. Um, he's somebody who, who has spent a lot of his political career trying to reach out to, um, to dissenting Israelis. And to try to make the case that that um, that his party, or in particular the Joint List, is the alternative to all of the various parties, uh, and it, in some ways, it, you know, in, in some ways, it's his strategy is a strategy that is somewhat working. So, when if you're a, somebody who's if you're an Israeli who's who cares in any way about Palestinians, and you look at the the broad range of the the political parties, um, there's nobody that you can vote for. There's nobody that you should be voting for uh, because the positions vary, you know, it's kind of shades of, of gray and not even that many shades of gray. Uh, for example, Meretz this, this year, which is the party that used to attract a lot of uh, Israeli leftists, um, this year aligned with Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak is a person who expanded the settlements at a faster pace than just about anybody. He's a, he's a person who is responsible for the killing of 13 Palestinian citizens of Israel in the year 2000. He's the one who made up the myth of the generous offer. Um, the people who he's surrounded by are people who also don't believe in equality for, for Palestinians. So it was easy to write off uh, Maris if you're somebody who cares. 
Now, the difference is that Hanin Zarbe doesn't isn't going to be reaching out to that particular um, crowd. Hanin's position and that of Tajema is very different. It's about empowering Palestinians and having a strong Palestinian voice in the Knesset pretty much at any cost. And she paid a very heavy price as being um, as having to bear the brunt of uh, Israeli racism and Israeli sexism. Uh, the number of comments, I mean, she, she could write a book about the number of comments that she heard for being for being a woman, an, a Palestinian woman in the Knesset, much, and not just that, an unmarried Palestinian woman. So you can imagine all of the, the comments that, that she received over the years. Why did she do it? Because she very much believed that there, there needed to be this strong Palestinian voice. Ayman is not Hanin. He will he'll continue to, to walk that line of, of trying to bring in um, more Jewish Israelis to support um, to support at least his political party, if not the joint list, versus Tajamat Balad, which is is taking a much uh, harder, stronger position when it comes to, to Palestinian rights. It's a it's a difference of of approach. I guess I wanted to uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting the uh, the different um, political parties. Um, could you explain a bit more about the Tajamo Ballad Party and what their um, kind of ideological origins are? And um, I, I know that they have this uh, historical association with the, their former leader, Azmi Bishara, and um, the Hanin Zarabi, as we've like discussed a little, um, really became this kind of hate figure, especially... Um, for her involvement in things like um, the Mavi Marmara, um, you know, siege breaking uh, flotilla to Gaza and so forth. Um, I mean, what really accounts for the? So the, uh, the first part of the question is about the where does Ballad come from politically, and the second part is um, what accounts for the sheer hatred against Hanin Zarabi and, and what kind of what happened to her in the end. So what are the origins? The origins were that, uh, you know, there used to be, oh gosh, there was a number of, I think, three main Palestinian political parties, one of them being the, the offshoot of the, uh, the Israel Communist Party, which is Jebha, uh, then the other being the, the Islamic uh, movement of the South, not of the North, the North boycott. And of these, um, from these, sorry, from these two main political parties, there were two offshoots. The first offshoot was Ahmed Tibi, who broke off and started his own political party that consists of him and uh, a man named Osama Saadi and um, a woman uh, who, who didn't actually make it on the, into the, the joint list this time around in terms of her number. And then the other breakoff was of the of Tijamar Balad. Now that breakoff happened in the late 90s, with the idea being that they felt that that um, they weren't being represented through Oslo, and the the dispute happened around Oslo with Jebha very much supporting um, Oslo, believing. I remember. I, I want you to take yourself back 25, 26 years. Uh, it's easy now to, for us to look at Oslo and say it was was very bad, and I'm sure there's some uh, some people who are listening who 
clued in at when it was first unveiled, but there were a lot of people who didn't. And, um, and so of the, a lot of people who didn't, there was a lot of enthusiasm for, for Oslo and for, for what they thought was going to be the end of Israel's military occupation. Uh, there were some who didn't believe that, who didn't, who didn't uh, drink the Kool-Aid, and Azmi Pshara was one of them, who very much from early on said that that uh, this is going to end up being some type of a trap, um, and then wanted to separate off from Jebha in order to create his own political party that would be advocating, that would have a, a, a Palestinian voice that's aimed at empowering Palestinians, not aimed at looking towards Israelis to sort of lift up. Um, I'm putting it in very simple terms, but but uh, I uh, just mostly for the sake of time more than anything else. Um, and so from that developed the Tejama the Bela uh, party. He he left the party when, when he left Palestine uh, in 2006, I believe it was. And, si- and it, since that time has had different leadership. Now, Hanin Zarbe was not only the first um, woman to be, uh, the first Palestinian woman to be elected onto the Jebha, uh, to the Jamar list, but she ended up being the first woman to make it, first Palestinian woman to make it into the Knesset. Um, that is from an, an anti-Zionist party. There had been others that were in Zionist parties. And because of the combination of her, her background, um, which is Palestinian, an uh, activist, and woman, she ended up bearing the brunt of, of Israel's um, racism and sexism. So whether it was in the Knesset with people uh, urging her and yelling at her that she should be going to Gaza, to then uh, men always yelling at her and, uh, and shouting at her and telling her that uh, she would never be able to survive in Gaza because she is an unmarried woman, to men yelling at her and shouting at her and telling her that she'd be uh, unable to survive in Gaza because she's not wearing hijab, to then a constant commentary in the newspaper speculating as to as to her um, uh, as to why it is that she is not married. Uh, as to whether it was a personality issue or not a personality issue. Uh, you know, again, going into this idea of sexism and racism, of course no man is going to want to marry her. And then, of course, maybe she's a lesbian. And you know, just this constant questioning that she ended up going through. This is even before the Mavi Marmara. When she decided to, to join on to the Mavi Marmara, the response that she ended up getting was just that much more um, exacerbated. And, uh, uh, and whether it was times that, you know, I, I work, there were a couple of times where I saw her in, in places outside of Nazareth where people would openly yell at her um, to the, the constant harassment that she felt in the, in the Knesset. At the end of 10 years of putting up with this, she said, you know what, I'm done. And uh, and I don't think anybody can blame her. She she's a trailblazer. She paved the way for a, a lot of people. She took the the heat um, at, at at in ways that I don't think a lot of people would be able to withstand. Yeah. And and through it all, you know, stayed um, stayed strong. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I wanted to shift a, a, for a couple minutes and, and talk about the the rumors, the the possibilities that the Palestinian Authority elections may or may not happen. Of course, this if it does take place, it would be f- a full thirteen years since the last one. Um, and what you know, kind of similarly, what a change in leadership uh, could mean or could not mean for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, what do you make of the, the the rumors of a possible election coming up, and um, and what do you you know what are your best predictions at this point? Yeah, it reminds me of uh, what's that that song? The wheels on the bus go round and round. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is I've heard yeah, Abu Mazen has been the reason I say this is that Abu Mazen has been talking about elections for as long as we had the last election. So from 2005, when he was elected in, until 2010, I think it was, we had a yearly um, slight fit of him saying that he was going to resign. I'm sure you remember mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every year it was like, that's it, I'm, yeah. I'm going to resign. And that's it, I'm going to resign. And I'm going to throw mm-hmm. in the keys. I'm throwing the keys. And then post-2010, he stopped doing that because I think people were saying, hey, please, yes, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time's <do> up. <laughs> and then uh, similarly with the, with the general elections, since pretty much since they happened in 2006, remember the we had presidential elections in 2005 and general elections mm-hmm. in 2006, again, we've been hearing about more repeated calls for elections. And I didn't. Um, I didn't look up the number of times. I'm sure you will, and uh, look it up. But it's definitely more than three times that I've heard him make this call for uh, for having elections. And there's always um, one stumbling block after another. The last time, if I if my memory is serving me right, uh, the last time he called for elections was 2014, mm-hmm. and then the attack on Gaza uh, put an end uh, put an end to that. But he he keeps repeating this same call for elections and yet doing absolutely nothing uh, about it. And you know, if I were to look into my crystal ball, and believe me, I'm not a magician, but I can tell you what, what <laughs> ha, based on what he's done in the past, what he will do is he's going to dispatch somebody from the Central Elections um, Committee to go down to Gaza. And the person from the Central Elections Committee is going to come back and say, the conditions are not ripe to have elections. And therefore, right. that will put an end to all of the talk about having um, elections. So he does this very often in order to, to allay fears about no transition post his departure. Um, and so he does this to kind of to allay fears, to, to get his own political party focusing on some other issues rather than on him. Uh, but then he never follows through with it. And we've now seen this yeah, since, since 2005. Elections were supposed to have taken place in 2009. At his, he in 2009 had his office write a memo that came out and said that no, elections weren't supposed to happen in 2009, that they should be uh, coinciding, happening at that same time as the general election, so therefore 2010. So even looking at his internal memo that came out in 2009 that says that elections should have happened in 2010, we're now 
close to 10 years past the due date on that alone. And uh, and the only thing that is stopping Abu Mazen from holding elections is Abu Mazen. Um, there is definitely, uh, there are definitely people who want to see a, a change in leadership. The last elections, the last polls that we've seen or more recent polls that we've seen have indicated that not only do they want to see um, that they're not in favor of Abu Mazen's rule, but they want to see him resign. And and so these are these are polls that I, I don't think we should be taking lightly. Will we see elections? No. Uh, if we if there were to be elections, what would happen? It's really hard to say because I think a lot of it will depend on who's running, what platforms they're running on, um, and uh, and what it is that they believe in. My my fear is that. Oslo is so now entrenched in in the West Bank in the Palestinian political system that if at best there are elections, that it's just going to be replacing one person with another, but not at all challenging the system. And uh, we saw this just happen this week with with the the financial transfers um, going going and taking place from Israel to the Palestinian Authority. For seven months, the PA was saying that they weren't going to accept the financial transfers of the tax revenues without getting all of their money. And, uh, and sure enough, after the after seven month uh, showdown, um, they seem to have uh, they seem to have crumbled because they know that the alternative is for the PA to crumble. And rather than them facing that PA crumble or, Rather than them looking for an alternative to the PA, uh, they instead ended up um, caving. And this is what I fear would happen if we were to have elections, is that we'll have the same system, just perhaps a different a different face. Yeah, the, the sort of Groundhog Day nature that you described of Abu, of uh, Mahmoud Abbas um, calling for elections over and over again sort of reminds me of the same sort of way he keeps threatening making empty threats to end security cooperation with Israel, right? right? <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, the ending security collaboration is always one of the, oh, we're going to do it definitely, we're going to do it definitely. And I can tell you that it definitely has not ended. Um, there is so much security collaboration that I, I don't even think people who are really um, – in the in the thick of it, really understand the the the, the full nature and full depth of it. Um, yeah. Having experienced it myself, I can uh, in a, in a in a way that was um, what's the word? Uh, like I wasn't the the way that I felt it was not in a in a because I was participating. It wasn't political. It was non political, and even on that level, the the security. Uh, cooperation collaboration is very is very very deep yeah isn't i mean in a way the security collaboration is the entire reason that the palestinian authority exists right in, in a way yes and in a way no what this showdown of the past seven months has taught us is that as much as israel wants to have the palestinian authority be there to be the uh, the collaborators, the security collaborators, they don't actually need them. And um, and I can tell you that having, you know, living here and going to the West Bank very often, that oftentimes when I'm leaving to go through the airport, I very frequently get asked about 
why I'm spending so much time in the West Bank with actual dates being provided. Um, this is a, there's so much surveillance that takes place in, in the West Bank that Israel has very much perfected the model of, of complete surveillance that, yes, it's important to have the PA to be the, the police presence or the security presence on the ground, but there are, way, there are tons of other mechanisms that, are, that Israel alone uses to make sure that, that Palestinians are, are being surveilled. That's really interesting because then yeah. that suggests that Mahmoud Abbas's sort of empty threats and um, sort of perpetually staying in office uh, are a sort of way, a desperate way to appeal for relevancy to the Israeli occupiers. Say, please, you do need us as security collaborators, right? That's how it sounds. That's exactly the that's exactly the point. And increasingly, the Israelis are. Um, are viewing him as being irrelevant and 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 unnecessary. Um, if they had really viewed him as being relevant and necessary, we would have seen a very different response coming from Netanyahu and from Israel when it comes to money that's being cut from uh, to the Palestinian Authority. We would have seen a very different response. We would have re- seen a response that happened in the late 90s, the early 2000s, etc. But instead, there is very much a, 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 a model that the Israelis are working off of, of making sure that Palestinians are employed, um, just to a kind of a, a minimum, as the PA does, and, and that this economic model, rather than a security model, is the one that's in place. Yeah, I mean, uh, to take a bit of a different tack, I wanted to ask about um, recent comments made by Gilad Erdan. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he said, so for our listeners, he said, um, I think this this week, I think yesterday, actually, the date on this article, um, Gilad Erna, Erdan, the... Um, Minister for so-called strategic affairs, which is the anti-BDS ministry, but in it, more relevant to this story is he's also the minister of public security, which is in charge of the police. And um, he said, "quote Arab society is a very is a very violent society." So he made a you know this is one of the top ministers in Israel, somebody very close to Benjamin Netanyahu in his ruling Likud party and so forth. Um, sometimes speculated to be some sort of successor to Netanyahu. I don't know about that. Um, But, um, you know, this is a prominent politician, top leading politician in Israel, making an openly racist uh, statement like this. Um, What are your thoughts? May I correct you? What he actually said is, not very violent, very, very violent society. Okay, that well, that, that's what Yediot Aronot have printed, but they're not <laughs> renowned for their accuracy, so I'll take you on that, your word on that. <laughs> I, I, say, I say it only because, so I, I, maybe I should give the context as to why he made these statements. Mr. He is very much a racist. Um, all right, so the, since... Uh, since 2000, since the year 2000, there has been an attempt, or there's been an effort by the Israeli. Actually, sorry, let me back up. For the since he has been in office, I'll just look at him as an individual. There has been there have been calls by 
Palestinians in Palestinian towns to have better policing systems and structures in place. Now, it, it may sound odd. Why would you want more police? And the reason that there, there is um, a, a, a desire to have more conflict resolution, it's actually not even more police, conflict resolution and uh, de-escalation mechanisms that are brought into these cities and towns is because uh, Israel has turned a blind eye to, to violence that's perpetrated against the Palestinian community. And just this year alone, um, there have been 73 Palestinians, citizens of Israel, who've been killed in violence, in, in acts of violence. It, that's a very high number, by the way, for a small community of, of uh, under 2 million, 1.8 million. And the reason that this, the, this level of violence is happening is because the basic social structures that exist in other societies are absent from Israel deliberately. So, for example, there aren't um, facilities that, that address uh, drug use and, and try to get people off of, um, off of drugs or to try to, to put into place conflict resolution mechanisms. It just doesn't exist because Israel has deliberately tried to turn Palestinian cities and towns into, into these um, into ghettos, for lack of a better term, right? Into places where, where it's um, where they want to see Palestinians killing other Palestinians. So for the past um, for the past uh, couple of weeks, there have been a series of protests by Palestinians in in Israel to try to get the police to pay attention and to try to get them to do something. Now, Gilad Erdan is the person who is responsible for this. And instead, and in fact, there was one protest that was so large that there were estimated 30 to 35,000 people in one, in one town. And these are ongoing. There will be another one this Thursday. They're going to continue to take place until people finally, until these politicians finally hear what is being demanded. If there had been an equal number of Jewish Israelis killed in that in violence, Gilad Erdan would have been kicked out long time ago. He would have lost his position long ago. But because these are Palestinians who are being killed, he doesn't care. And so his response to the request that there be more, um, more attention paid to these communities, that there be more conflict resolution um, mechanisms, that there, be a, that there be some more policing, positive policing, not negative, um, in these communities, is being met with his response is, I'm not going to do anything. You all are very, very, very violent. So he's a minister for police saying that you're not going to get any more police, basically. He's not going to get any more police. And that instead, they're going to focus their attention on, um, on, the, on Jewish Israeli towns. That's it. And, and so this is, this is the logic that he and Netanyahu have, which is that it's okay to, um, to turn these communities into, into disarray. And, and it's okay to let these communities become dilapidated. It's okay to, to, let, um, to let this, and some of these killings, by the way, are, are in the shadow of Israeli laws that are discriminatory. For example, 
because of this law that I was talking about earlier that um, that may lead to the demolition of some 50,000. 50,000 houses are affected now, and they might not all be demolished, but 50,000 houses in Palestinian communities are affected by this. Because they are affected, there is there becomes disputes over, over property issues, over who can build, who can't build, what the setback rules are, etc., with fear then running through these communities that they're going to be the next target of a demolition. And when you get to a person's uh, sense of safety and sense of security with the state actively trying to play a role in undermining your sense of safety and your sense of of home security, I'm not talking uh, like wider security, but your sense of personal security. This is what we're what is happening in these in these communities is that that um, it, it it's ended up that people like the combination of Gilad Erdan with uh, Netanyahu enact these very racist laws in order to try to turn these communities into into underfunded. Um, uh, under underfunded, dilapidated communities. And when you when you look at Israel from 1948 until until the current day, Israel built more than 700,000 homes for Jewish Israelis. 700,000. Just they built for Palestinians, zero. There's been not one community that has been built for Palestinians. And so as a result, you have all of the social problems that come with land confiscation, that come with Israel um, closing off these these Palestinian towns, forcing Palestinians to build on top of one another rather than expand outwards, forcing, making it so expensive that Palestinians can't move from one community to another, not funding uh, the growth of, of of a new town um, and then, of course, not providing any of the social services to any of the of the cities. It's this is this is part of the plan, and and Erdan's reaction is very much symbolic of the or indicative. His, his reaction is very indicative of of the way that he approaches Palestinians. He's a racist, and he and because he's a racist, he's not going to do anything to remedy the problems that he and his government have created. He's just going to try to. Uh, exacerbate them. That's the voice of Deanna Butu. She's a political analyst. Um, she's a former legal advisor and negotiator for the Palestine Liberation Organization. And uh, she's also a policy advisor to Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. Deanna, as always, it's so good to speak with you. Thank you so much for this uh, essential analysis and information. And we will bring you back on very soon. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both. that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.